0: c-o-c-o-r-i-s dot com now let's hear from mike i've been very few times in my lifetime that i think i've been surprised speechless but it has happened i remember once not too long ago when my children did it by a present they gave me now it was christmas time and my children were going to give me a christmas present But they were all students, and everybody knows that students are broke, so they didn't have a lot of money. What do students give a father pastor for Christmas? They led me into the bedroom, made me close my eyes, and then I opened them, and I was standing before my own bed. I didn't see anything on that bed that looked like a present to me. They made me lift the pillow, And then it's when it happened. I was surprised speechless. I was so surprised, at first I I didn't even recognize what was under the pillow. It looked like a a little mechanism, a control mechanism of some kind. One of those kind of remote control kind of things like you use on a television set. And I I couldn't imagine why they were giving me this. I wasn't even sure what it was. And. I soon found out that what it was was the remote on a television set. And I wondered why they just gave me the remote. I turned around, and to my surprise, I discovered that my kids had given me a small 13-inch color television set for my bedroom. I was stunned. I was shocked. I was speechless. Well, after some of the shock wore off, they began to explain to me some of the features and benefits of this particular model. They began to explain to me why they gave me that particular set. You see, I have a habit of going home on Sunday night after the service and after I've talked with people and very often I meet with people afterwards and I I watch television. 60 Minutes, and sometimes Murder, she wrote. And often, especially uh, during the football season, uh, I will uh, stay up later than I normally do, and I'll watch uh, uh, the late edition, the sports edition, and fall asleep on the den couch. Now, this particular little TV set they bought me has a little button on it that you can push this button, and it's a snooze button, then you can fall asleep and the TV will automatically turn itself off one hour later. And that's why they bought me that model, because I've been known to fall asleep in the den and the TV go on all night. Now, it seems to me that that is a little snapshot of what Paul does in the book of Romans. He takes four chapters to explain to us that God has given us a gift. The gift of eternal life. The gift, as he calls it in those four chapters, of justification by faith. Now, when you get down to the end of chapter 4, you realize that you have been the recipient of this great gift of God's grace. What he does next is explain to you some of the features that are on this gift. He explains to us the benefits of... Of justification alright so I have trusted Jesus Christ I am now justified in the sight of God which means I'm declared righteous so what benefits do I have because of that well there are many they are legion but several of them are explained to us in the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 5 it is that passage I would invite your attention to today Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into the grace into which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died through whom we have now received the reconciliation." In this passage, the Apostle Paul gives us three benefits of justification. The first is in verse 1. He says, "'Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ.'" Now, as is obvious by that first word, therefore, This is connected to what has been said in the previous passage. He concluded chapter 4 by telling us that Jesus Christ died and Jesus Christ arose from the dead. Therefore, based on the work of Jesus Christ, having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. The idea is basically this. God so to speak, was angry with us. As a matter of fact, back in chapter 1, verse 18, he said, The wrath of God was revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. God was angry at sin. But then, as Romans so eloquently teaches us, Jesus Christ died to pay for our sin and then arose from the dead. In the death and resurrection of Christ, all of God's wrath was appeased, and so now there can be peace with God. So one of the benefits of having trusted in Jesus Christ is I now have peace with God. Let's talk about this concept of peace for a second. There are two ways to look at peace. There is an objective sense in which there is peace, meaning there was war and now there is the cessation of war and the cessation of hostilities. And there is the subjective sense in which there is peace, meaning some kind of uh, inner tranquility. Now, in Romans 5, 1... Paul is not talking about this subjective peace. He's talking about objective peace. People who do not know Jesus Christ are described in the Bible as the enemies of God. They are at war with God. But because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, peace has been declared. There is the cessation of hostility. There is the cessation of war there is now peace between God and the sinner. That is the benefit of our being justified by faith. Now the subjective peace that we have from God may come from the objective peace, but the objective peace is the primary meaning of Romans 5.1 and not the subjective tranquility we so often talk about. But be all that as it may, the point is that the first benefit of justification by faith is that I now have peace with God. Some have illustrated this by pointing out that many have a fear of God. They look at Him as a policeman or a judge ready to jump on them and pounce on them and condemn them. Then a person trusts in Jesus Christ and they discover That God is not a policeman. He's not a judge. He's a father. There's no more hostility. God is not like a hostile force coming at you. He's a loving father. We have peace with God. The white flag has gone up, so to speak, and there's no more war between us. That's the first benefit. justification there is a second he says in verse 2 through whom also second benefit we have access by faith into his grace in which we stand the first benefit is that we have peace with God the second is that we have a position of favor I am choosing my words carefully. Note carefully what Paul is saying. He says in verse 2, Through Jesus Christ we have access by faith. Now the faith of verse 2 is the same faith of verse 1. It is justification by faith, meaning at the point I exercise faith in Jesus Christ, at that moment I gain access into God. Now, the word translated access means just that, uh, to approach, to be uh, brought into, to have access. The idea is to have access into the throne room of a monarch. So he says, we have access by faith into His grace. Now note that phrase carefully. As you know, the word grace means favor. So the moment I trust Jesus Christ, I am introduced into God's favor. And then he adds, in which we stand. Now that little word stand in the Greek text is in the perfect tense, which means simply I gained this in the past and I'm still in it in the present. But putting all of this together, the concept is that now that I have trusted Jesus Christ, I am standing in a position of favor. Let that sink in for a minute. I'm at peace. God is at peace with me. But more than that, I'm now in a position to receive his favors. I'm now in a position of favor. Let me put it like this. I've heard preachers come to this verse and preach on prayer. They piggyback on the word access, and the idea is that I have access into God's presence through prayer I don't doubt that that may be involved but technically that's not what the verse is saying look at the verse does it say I have access into God's presence no it says I have access into God's favor grace I'm now in a position for God to bless me I'm now in a position for God to give His favors to me. I stand in His favor. Let me illustrate. It would be one thing to say that I had been ushered into the presence of a powerful, influential man. It would be another thing entirely to say that I had been ushered into the presence of that man and he was predisposed to act kindly toward me. You see, I could be ushered into his presence And he could be mad at me. I could uh, be ushered into his presence and he could be neutral. I'd have to persuade him to grant me some favor. Or I could be ushered into his presence with it already predetermined that if at all possible, he's going to grant whatever I ask him. So this is more than just saying I have access to God's presence. That's not quite it, though that may be involved. It's that I now have a position of favor. God is smiling at me. He's not frowning. And he wants to bless me. So the second benefit of being justified by faith is that I have access into his favor. There is more. Again, in verse 2, he says, and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. A little word translated rejoice literally means to glory. The idea is to boast. It is to brag. So the third benefit of being justified by faith is that I now have the privilege of boasting. Earlier in the book of Romans, Paul taught that if you tried to boast about your accomplishments before God, you would find it an utter futility and failure. All boasting before God is excluded. Remember that? It's in Romans chapter 3, verse 27. Now, after I've trusted in Jesus Christ, I now have the privilege of boasting. Now, that might not strike you as one great awesome privilege, but it is awesome. I mean, it's awesome. Beginning at verse 3, and going all the way down through verse 11, Paul's one point is that I now have the privilege of boasting. I want you to look at your Bible and look at it carefully. He says at the end of verse 2, and rejoice, circle the word rejoice. Now look at verse 3. Not only that, we also glory. Circle the word glory. And drop down to verse 11. And not only that we also rejoice. Circle the word rejoice in verse 11. All three of those words are the same in the Greek text. It is unmistakable as you are reading this passage in the Greek text that he is saying in this extended treatment of this point, that we have the privilege of boasting and glorying and rejoicing. Now, he takes a lot of verses to develop this. There are several items we can glory in. So what I want to do for the next few moments is list for you some of our some of the possibilities of what we can boast about, what we can glory in. For example, he says in verse three, we, uh, I'm sorry, verse two, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, if you will recall, in chapter three, he said, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Remember that? Now, he says, we're going to rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, the little phrase glory of God can be interpreted several different ways. It can either mean God's glory, that glory which he possesses, or it can mean that uh, glory which he shares with us. But either way, we either see it or experience it. We fell short of it before we trusted Christ, Now, we can boast that our expectation is of the glory of God. That is clearly our future anticipation of being with the Lord and experiencing His glory. Now, let me stop and summarize everything I've said. What are the benefits of justification? Number one is peace with God. That has to do with our past. Number two is I have a position of access into his favor. Number three, I have the privilege of boasting, and the first thing I can boast about is in future glory. Now, that deals with my past. My sins are taken away and I am at peace with God. It deals with my present. I have access into the favor of God and it deals with my future. I anticipate the glory of God." Now that's the benefits of justification. Seems to me that all of life is either lived in memory of the past or in anticipation of the future. The event itself is over usually very quickly and is in most cases disappointing. It's remembering it afterwards or anticipating it beforehand that you get all the satisfaction. Ever notice that? Now, if you have bad memories and bad dreams of the past and bad goals for the future or no goals, you're a pretty miserable, shriveled-up soul, right? But if you have good memories of the past and you have dreams for the future, good dreams for the future, solid goals for the future, then you're alive and you have something to live for, right? Now, the Christian ought never be caught without having great joy, something to boast about and something to brag about. Oh, their, their sins and their failures in the past, but they're under the blood of Christ, and I'm at peace with God. <laughs> Hallelujah and I'm anticipating the glory of God in the future. So why should I be sad? I should have joy. I should be rejoicing. I should be bragging and boasting in in the Lord because of what I have in him. I can boast in future glory. Now some realistic soul is going to say, All sounds kind of nice, but I'm a realist. And though I admit that I have peace with God and hope of future glory, I'm realistic enough to know that there are very present pressing problems right now. Now, what do you do with that? How does justification by faith relate to Monday morning? or Friday afternoon, or Saturday night? The answer is this. Paul says in this passage that I have the privilege of glorying, not only in future glory, but in present tribulation. The second thing I can glory in is not only future hope, but I can glory in present trouble right now. Look at the passage. He says in verse 3, not only that, but we also glory in tribulation. Now in verse 2 he said, we rejoice, the Greek word is glory, we glory in future hope. In verse 3 he says, we glory in tribulation. Incredible. The believer in Jesus Christ can literally glory in tribulation. Now, there are a couple of things we need to note there. The word tribulation literally means pressure, distress, affliction. It's talking about suffering. The modern buzzword is stress exactly what that word means. Everybody runs from it. The believer in Jesus Christ can glory in it. (laughs) It's great. I'm bragging about the fact I got a whole bunch of trouble on my hands. You say, insane. Something not right about that. How can you stand up there and say, that you're going to glory. I can understand glory in heaven in the future. How are you going to glory in hell in the present? Well, Paul explains it. He says this, verse 3, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now, there's a three-step process that allows me to glory in tribulation. Step number one, tribulation produces perseverance. The word perseverance literally means endurance. I can glory in this tribulation because this tribulation is going to teach me to endure. Now think about that for a second. Does tribulation teach you to endure? endure? Well, some people don't endure the, the pressure, do they? No, they don't. There's a piece missing here. And I would submit for your consideration a consideration of James chapter 1 where he says, Rejoice! Count it all joy when you fall into various kinds of trials, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Same word, endurance. And that verse he tells us the... Trying of your faith, meaning the genuine part of your faith. If in the midst of a trial you trust God, James says, then it will produce endurance. So Paul simply summarizes the situation and says, Tribulation produces perseverance. What's missing in the formula is you've got to trust God in the process. James adds that fact. Step two, verse four. And perseverance produces character. That is, if you trust God in the midst of this pressure, that'll mean you'll stick with it and be steadfast. You'll persevere. And if you persevere, as long assuming you're trusting God, then he will produce character in you through the trial. Now, the word translated character literally means approved. The idea being that God is going to develop in me characteristics that he approves, provided I endure in the midst of the trial. As a matter of fact, some have translated this by the little phrase approved character or proven character. I like that. That says it. That in the midst of the fire the gold is refined and there comes out on the other side proven character. To add the little word proven on the front of the word character is like adding the word sterling to the word silver. You come out sterling silver. So step two is that endurance is going to produce character. And then he says character produces hope that there is going to be in me this expectation of the future hope. Now there is a difference between the hope in verse 2 and the hope in verse 4. Let me explain this because I think it's very critical. When I trust Christ, I automatically get a certain hope for the future. No doubt about that. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, it's settled, it's sealed, it's secure. You have eternal life and nothing can change that. But the hope of verse 4 is not the hope you get immediately at salvation or justification. Rather, it is the hope that comes at the end of a process of trials, troubles, and tribulations. After you've lived a while, had a few problems, experienced a little pressure, then after a while, you just start hankering for home, you know? And rather than destroying that hope that you had of heaven at the beginning, it's strengthened. So proven character ends up with great expectation. Great expectation of what God can do in the present, and great expectation of what God is going to do in the future. After you've been through the fire, you come out on the other side, if the process is working as God intended it, with hope. Let me illustrate. Young sailor gets into the midst of a severe storm and he is seized with fear that could quickly degenerate into panic. He's not sure he can handle the ship. If his fear controlled him, he would collapse but if, but if he endures the storm, if he trusts the skills that he's been taught and he makes it through that one, he'll more than likely make it through the next one and the next one and the next one and the next one. To so finally you have a seasoned sailor on your hands and he hits a storm. And now he knows, he knows by experience, the severity of the storm, the seaworthiness of the ship, and his his own ability to steer. And it's that sailor that hangs with the ship with hope we're going to make it through. I've been here before, it's going to be all right. Now, to the Christian, there is hope at the beginning. The Spirit of God produces within his bosom that he has the expectation of heaven. But as he weathers a few storms, as he's slapped upside the head with a few difficulties and problems, then certain things are developed within his personality, endurance, character, and hope. He sees God work. He's seen God work in the past, and he's confident God's going to work in the present. There's no doubt in his mind that God will bring him through this one too. So, one of the benefits of justification is that I have the privilege of boasting, glorying, glorying in future hope, and that is not a head-in-the-sands kind of approach to life. It's a very realistic approach to life, one that accounts for God being on the scene, that allows me to glory even in present tribulation as well as future anticipation. Now, Paul, at this point in the passage, adds a note. If you have that kind of hope, Hope in the future, hope in present trouble, you will not be disappointed. Pick up the passage at verse 5. He says, now hope does not disappoint. At the end of verse 4, as you went through this process, you ended up with hope. And now he says that hope is not going to be disappointed. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were yet or still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, but perhaps for a good man someone will even dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now here's what he's saying. If you have hope in the midst of trials that God is going to come through for you, you will not be disappointed. How can you be so dogmatic and sure of that? Well, Paul says, because, verse 5, God has poured out in our hearts the Holy Spirit. Now listen to me very carefully. I've always been under the impression that this verse meant that the moment I got saved, the Holy Spirit was given to me, and at that moment, I realized God loved me. Now, I believe that's true. That does happen to people. But I've come to believe that isn't exactly what Paul means in this verse. He does mean to say that the Holy Spirit is given to you at salvation. Matter of fact, he says that very clearly. By the Holy Spirit, who was, past tense, given to us. And he means at the moment of conversion. But in the context of this passage he is not talking about a realization of the love of God which you received at conversion he is talking about a realization of the love of God which you get after coming through trials now please hear me it is the Christian who is trusting God in the midst of trials that begins to realize That he has a whole new relationship with God and that these trials are really a manifestation of God's love whereas before every time something happened he thought oh no God's mad at me which by the way is true if you haven't trusted Jesus Christ the wrath of God is revealed from heaven remember but if you now know Jesus Christ and trials come along, you have a whole new relationship with God. You are in a position of favor. So these trials are for my benefit. That's why I can glory in them. I can look at these trials and say, God loves me. He sent all these troubles my way. That's exactly what's happening. Sort of like a parent who loves his son or daughter and makes them go through the paces because he loves them. He wants to develop them. Now he says, "Let me give you a sample of the nature of the love of God. It's that realization the Spirit of God gives us that in the midst of this, God loves me." Let me tell you how God loves. This is awesome. Verse 6, when we were without strength, when we were weak and frail, we didn't have the ability to do what God commanded us to do. Christ died for the ungodly. We were without strength. We were ungodly. Verse 8 says, while we were still sinners, we'd missed God's mark We were very much unlike Him. We were frail and weak and didn't have the strength to do what He had commanded us to do. We were hopeless, ungodly, wretched, hell-deserving sinners. You know what God did? He loved us like that. He loved us so much that when we were like that, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. Now, that's a sample of the love of God. Now, look, you might might conceive of somebody dying for a righteous man, he says, or a good man. Now, there's a difference between those two. A righteous man is someone who's trying to live by the letter of the law, and he's trying to do what's right. A good man is one who's trying to do good, kind, benevolent things for other people. And Paul says, you might find somebody that'd die for a righteous man, and maybe you might find somebody that'd die for a good man. You're not going to find anybody to die for a bum, right? That's what Jesus Christ did. And it's that realization... Of the love of God that comes through to the Christian who's trusting Jesus Christ in the midst of a trial. I think this is I think this is incredible because if you know the human nature at all you know that when the midst you're going through the midst of a trial you don't do everything exactly right 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 if you have got any perfectionistic tendencies at all you really get down on yourself So it's in the midst of your weakness, in the midst of your ungodliness, in the midst of your sin, in the midst of all the pressure coming crowding in on you, that the Spirit of God within your heart gives you the realization, God loves me anyway. (laughs) I can glory in tribulation, because the God is going to use this to develop my character. And because I am learning, God loves me. Is that incredible? A supernatural kind of life, that's what it is. Be careful. This kind of stuff is dangerous to your neurosis by walking around rejoicing all the time. You might actually have some joy on your face and in your heart. I can rejoice. <laughs> God loves me. I know I got a ton of problems. Who cares? That's only developing my character. God loves me. He's smiling. I'm in favor with him. I can rejoice So one of the privileges of being a child of God of being justified by faith is I have the privilege of boasting in future glory and in present trials There's a third use of the word glory in this passage The word glory does not occur until verse 11 But I am of the opinion that the thought starts in verse 9. And then it is at the end of this passage that he gives us the point. So he says in verse 9, Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And then he goes on to explain, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall future be saved by his life. And not only that, we shall also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. For simplicity's sake, let me begin by saying that we're still talking about having the privilege of boasting. And he's giving us three things we can boast about. The first is future glory, that's verse 2. The second is present trouble, that's verses 3 through 8. And the third is present salvation, verses 9 through 11. He is saying to us in this passage, that we can glory because God is going to save us. Now, notice carefully. It says, having been justified, we shall be saved. Did you see that in verse 9? I have told you before, I tell you now, and I will tell you again, The word saved is one of the most misunderstood words in all of the New Testament because we have relegated it to the point of conversion and that's the totality of our understanding of it. But from a New Testament perspective, yea, from a biblical perspective, the word saved is used in three different ways. I have been saved. I am being saved. I shall be saved. I have been saved from the penalty of sin. I am being saved from the power of sin. I shall be saved from the presence of sin. You have got to get that straight. And there is no better verse in the Bible to illustrate that there's a difference between being saved and being justified than Romans 5, 9. Have then, having now been justified, we shall be saved clear as the nose on your face that there's a difference between being justified and being saved now he's obviously not talking about being saved from the penalty of sin that's clear that leaves two other possibilities he's either talking about being saved from the power of sin or he's talking about being saved from the presence of sin almost all Bible teachers take the second possibility. They interpret wrath as future wrath, as hell, and saying that this means we shall be saved from hell. What I'm about to tell you puts me in the minority of expositors, but I believe that it is difficult, yea, I really think it's impossible to find in the Bible any reference to an eternal wrath of God. I do not believe that wrath is ever used of hell. There are two kinds of wrath in the New Testament. There is the wrath that is currently on people, and there is the wrath to come, which is another way of talking about the tribulation period. Now, in the book of Romans, he's used the word wrath twice, or at least in two different passages. He's used it in chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is presently revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And he used it in chapter 2, in my opinion. I'm not exactly alone in that, but I'm almost alone. Of the tribulation period. Now he gets here and says, He shall save us from wrath. Now, what's he talking about I have come to the conclusion he's talking about present tense salvation or being saved from the power of sin I can glory I can rejoice in the midst of trouble in that God will save me from his getting angry at me again he'll save me from the power of Of sin I say that for two reasons one is he gave the most attention in the early part of Romans to present wrath and more important as we move on into the book of Romans he will now develop this point in depth in Romans 6 and in Romans 7 and in Romans 8 he is going to develop in depth the fact that God is presently saving us from the power of sin So, the argument of verses 9 and 10 in this passage is this. If, when we were enemies, verse 10, we were reconciled through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, having been justified, is he not going to save us by his life? And I I take it he's talking about the resurrected life, Of Jesus Christ and that Romans 6 gives us the great exposition of this it is that we are put into Christ and Christ is put into us that gives us power over sin so now he says in verse 11 not only that but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation I can rejoice in that God is going to save me. Now that's clearly what verses 9 through 11 are saying. The only question is, is it being saved from the presence of sin or is it being saved from the power of sin? And I am saying it is talking about being saved from the power of sin. And the argument is, if God saved you, If God justified you and reconciled you when you were an enemy, why wouldn't he give you the power to save you from the power of sin now? Why, of course he would. The gift is eternal life. Everything else are the trappings that come with it. Somebody gave you a present, it would come in a box with wrappings and a ribbon. So the argument is if God gave you a present of gold in a box, well then certainly the box and the wrappings and the ribbon are going to come with it. If he gave you the gift of justification, he's going to give you the wrappings of salvation. Meaning salvation from the power of sin. Now be all that as it may, let me sum up what I think this passage is saying. Very simply, he's obviously talking about the benefits of justification. And he basically is talking about three benefits of justification. The first is that I have peace with God. The second is that I have a position of favor with God. And the third is that I have the privilege of boasting. It's that third point that he spends all of his time developing. I boast in future glory. I boast in present trouble. And I can boast in present deliverance from sin. But one of my privileges as a justified believer is that I can boast in God. Let me conclude by making two very practical suggestions. The first is simply that you learn to glory in tribulation. This passage says, verse 2, and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and not only that, we glory in tribulation. Learn to do that. That's the practical application of this passage. Paul states it in the indicative. James states it in the imperative. James gives us a command and says, count it all joy when you fall into various kinds of trials. I came to the conclusion years ago from the study of James that this is the essence of what making it through trouble is all about. You got any problems right now? Are you breathing? Let me tell you how to handle a good problem, gloat in it glory over it because you see I can glory in this you know why God loves me we've had a lot of trouble in the last couple of years in the church of the open door several people have said why did God let this happen to you and on one or two selected occasions I've said because he loves me blew their sockets Blew their circuits. What are you talking about? Don't you understand that a loving father gives you trouble so he can develop your character? Let me tell you, i got lots of character I didn't even want. (laughs) (laughs) Well, how did you make it through it? Real simple. God loves me. Matter of fact, in one of the biggest crises I ever had, I was just standing before the city council trying to explain a whole bunch of stuff. I heard the whole world crashing in on me and I was interviewed live on some talk show. Some interviewer said, aren't you bitter? Well, it never occurred to me to be bitter. I said, bitter? Why should I be bitter? I got a God who loves me, I got a church who loves me, I got a family who loves me, why should I be bitter? And it just rolled off the top, and then I got to thinking about it. That's exactly what this passage is saying. Amen? Why get angry? Why get bitter? All this is demonstrating is that God loves me, and that I got flaws that need to be corrected. <laughs> right? Don't agree with that. It's <laughs> exactly right. We've all got flaws, and God lets us go through these uh, times of pressure so he can teach us to glory in tribulation, develop character in us, and he lets us know throughout the process, don't worry, I love you. That's why you're going through it. But I have a second suggestion. I want you to take your Bible. I want you to look carefully at the passage. He says in verse 3, glory in what? Tribulation. Now drop down to verse 11. And rejoice, same Greek word translated glory in verse 3, and glory in... Huh, did you see that? You start out glorying in tribulation. You really start out glorying in hope of the future. Then you glory in tribulation, and you end up glorying in God. Let me tell you what the ultimate in life is. The ultimate in life is learning to glory in God. Paul gets down to the end of the book of Galatians and he says, I don't want to glory in the flesh. I want a glory save only in the cross by which the world is crucified to me and I unto the world. I want to just glory in the Lord. I think there's a sense in which, is, particularly as a young believer, you begin to glory in God's gifts. And that's perfectly proper. I think this passage is teaching that in part, in that tribulation is the gift from the hand of God. But after a while, you begin to glory not just in God's blessing, not just in God's allowing you to go through trouble, but you glory in Him that the real ultimate is to glory in him. Not just in the gift, but in the giver. Lord, it's all worth it if I can just walk with you. It's all worth it if I can just know you. Lord, I want to glory. In that, not that I'm learning, though that's there, not that my character is being developed, though that's valuable, and I'm to glory in that. But I want to glory, not just that I'm going to heaven, but I'm—I've I'm, got a little heaven right now. I want to glory in you. So, what I'd really like to suggest you do is not only learn to glory in tribulation, but glory in God. Dr. Talbot, a man who used to pastor this church, in his book on Romans tells the story of a little boy who got a lot of Christmas presents and enjoyed playing with them. But after a fashion he got tired of playing with all the toys he crawled up in his mother's lap, threw his arms around her neck and said, Mommy, I love you. And his mother said, How much do you love me? Do you love me more than these toys? Dr. Talbot said, the little boy said, Oh, yes, Mommy, I love you more than the toys because I get tired of playing with the toys. And Dr. Talbot said, That little boy was glorying in his mother What an illustration. Think we get enamored with the toys. We glory in the gifts. The ultimate in life is to glory in the giver. Let's pray. Father, we thank you For bringing us into your favor through justification by faith. For making peace, declaring us righteous. Reconciling us to yourself. Saving us from the penalty and even the power of sin. But Father, we thank you most of all that we know you. We glory in you. We confess that our attention gets misdirected. We sometimes get our attention off on even things like the world, material things, relationships. May the Spirit of God, our Father, draw our attention back to you. May we learn as your children to glory in you and only you.